This is Talking Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talking Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Hey, this is Jody Stemmler. And I'm Steve Belinda, and welcome back to Talking Mule Deer. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a crazy year, and we, we got all caught up in, you and I have been very busy on a couple of projects, and, and that took us out, and then, uh, of course, there there's hunting that took us away, so... So yeah, it's been since about August since we talked last. Yeah, so I'm just going to chalk this up to being a crazy year. But, you know, as you said, I was fortunate enough to draw a couple tags, uh, deer and elk tags. So I actually had a very busy fall with my hunting season. It went right into projects and then end of the year. So, um, yeah, it's been a crazy time. But, uh, you know, through it all, I think we're, uh, we're still here and I hope folks missed us. That's right. Well, we'll get into our hunting seasons and uh, and we, other things we need to talk about here because we have a lot of news about Talking Mule Deer and Mule Deer Foundation. But let's introduce our guest who is one of our more popular and favorite people to have in the chair with us, Miles Moretti. Miles, how are you doing? Good. I'll bet you say that to all your guests. <laughs> we don't because we've only had uh, you repeatedly. Everybody else we've only uh, talked to once. So, oh, so no, okay. Miles. Well, and he, he approves uh, things, Jody. So, right. He, so he we approves have to be paychecks nice. and that. So he gets that extra <laughs> special attention. So, yeah, Miles, we're really happy to have you on because um, you're winding down your time with the Mule Deer Foundation, aren't you? Yep. I uh, I, re- I extended my retirement uh, due to COVID, but. And so I'm going to be here till the end of March. End of March. And then uh, then we're hopefully going to be getting a new CEO on. And uh, we'll talk more about that one, too, uh, when we get into it. But we're happy to to have you in the seat again. So, Steve, kick us off. What are the couple things we needed to talk about today? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I want to give the our listeners uh, the message that MDF is still going strong. We actually had a really good year project-wise, conservation-wise, even in the light of COVID. A lot of our projects stayed on track. We actually expanded in a couple areas, and we actually ended up doing more in 2020 acreage-wise and money on the ground-wise than we had in some of the previous years. And I, you know, I think it was a double-edged sword. Although people couldn't get out and get together, we could put people to work out into the forest in the field doing habitat work. And uh, one of the big things that happened um, in one of the projects that I manage is, is we wound down our first five years of sagebrush planting in Southern Idaho. That's an agreement that we had with the Bureau of Land Management and the Idaho Fish and Game Department. And we ended up finishing our fifth year planning. And when I added all the numbers up, we ended up putting in about 532,000 shrubs on approximately about 30,000 acre area over the last five years. So that's a huge accomplishment. Wow. What's even more important, you've had great survival too, right? Because you're going back year, year after year and seeing how those shrubs you're putting in, right? If I'm not mistaken, you're saying you're having better than normal survival rates on that bitter brush and sagebrush you're planting. Yeah, anecdotally, our survival rate was somewhere between 30 and 60%. They're getting the final monitoring plot numbers back to me. And, and I attribute that to a couple of things. A couple of things we control, the quality of the planters that we use to put the plants in the ground, making sure that every plant has the best chance of survival when it's put into the right substrate. And secondly, the moisture that we were able to get every year. I mean, it was, it literally started raining as I was packing up the trailer and getting ready to move on this year. And that's happened every year, rain or snow within 
hours of finishing planting. That's pretty nice. The third thing, and this is really beyond our control, is the quality of plants that we get from the nurseries. And that's where the Bureau of Land Management and the Idaho Fishing Game work with the nurseries to ensure that we're getting that high-quality bitter brush and high-quality sagebrush for the right seed zone, delivered at the right time, kept cool, the plugs are solid, and that we can get them out of the, you know, from the nursery to the trailer, out of the trailer, to the planters and into the field in the short amount of time as possible. That's awesome. We've also done a lot of stewardship stuff. Miles, do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the stewardship projects that have been going on? Well, I've kind of turned a lot of this over to Steve. That's why I hired him. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, used, I used to have That's to kind of monitor That's what Director of Conservation all. does. <laughs> yep, yeah. So it's been nice to be able to, you know, take that off my plate and focus on some other things, especially during COVID-19. But, but you know, I got to say our the stewardship program is is exceeded uh, the vision I had several years ago when when I started it, and uh, just continues to grow and to get more popular. and And even out in California, where we had such a devastating wildfire season, we were able to accomplish more acres out there than we have in any other year. and And people are on the ground working right now as we speak, and and with projects in uh, in Colorado and Utah, that's been just phenomenal. So, you know, it's it's a great program. And what if a lot of people, when we say stewardship, they really don't know what that means. That basically we're we're cutting or thinning trees uh, and creating wildlife habitat. Uh, An interesting thing happened to us up on the north slope of the Uintas on the Wyoming Utah line. The, while they were in there working, uh, deer and elk were moving in right behind the equipment and munching on the on the aspens and things that were there, and and so they're they're pretty phenomenal how successful they are, and and a lot of people think when we're we talk about cutting trees, we're talking about clear cutting. We're not. We're thinning and generally open up that forest canopy. So great program. It's thinning. Yep, mastication yep. where they they yep. have the grinders that go in top down and just chew up. That's that's a big part of what's going on here in Colorado, um, out on the Grand Mesa and Capagre National Forest where we've got a project. Uh, there's also a regional conservation partnership project in Arizona, and they've been doing a lot of that mastication as well. So it's it's really helping the agencies to get more work done on the ground uh, than they can do themselves because of budget shortfalls. There's a cooperative agreement that we have with them, a shared stewardship agreement, if I if that's the best way to to put it, that allows us to do the work. Um, for them on these federal public lands. Well, the interesting thing is, is you know, we can when we do our contracting, we use the same contractors that they do, but but we can kind of kind of get more out of them than you know in the in some of the bureaucracy of the government stuff. And so we're we really like doing this work for the for the agencies because. Um, the contractors are eager to work with us. They they know they know our system now, and we have um, you know contractors all over the country that that sign up to to bid on a project. And we you know when we first started this, we were would have one or two contractors bid on a project. Now we may have eight, ten, or twelve uh, interested in the project. So um, that's, that's really awesome. really you know helped help us on uh, getting getting more work done more efficiently. You know, and and Jody, I I would be remiss not to identify our leaders in this in this area for MDF. Stan Baker, who's uh, an old stalwart, an old gray beard in this business, but probably knows more about habitat issues than most people would ever want to learn. 
and Kevin Zeman, who's just been, you know, a rock star out in California and, and the other regions on the West Coast, they really have taken the role as leaders for this type of approach to working with the Forest Service and taking it to a new level. And the growth and success we had is directly attributed to those two individuals. Yeah, it's, it's great stuff. And what I was going to say is that you've probably noticed that MDF has really stepped up our social media uh, on Facebook and Instagram. And over the summer, we have posted some uh, videos and some information about some of these projects. So if you'd like to get some more information, our viewers, they can go online um, and check out on Facebook or Instagram. If you're not following already, it gives you a good chance to to check up and learn more about the projects in Colorado and California. There's some, we had some local press in California as well, some, some television news stations and things like that. So it's a really, really positive, proactive way to manage public lands and, and our wildlife habitats, which is awesome. So. Well, what I was going to say is, is, you know, uh, this has really opened up uh, how people look differently at forest management. Um, You know, doing nothing didn't work and it maybe exasperated, uh, you know, the, the, our problems and created these fires to be bigger. And, you know, when you add climate change and drought and all the things that are going on. And then, of course, you know, out in California, we've had this huge loss of life and property because people have built up into these areas that haven't been managed for many years. And, yeah, wildland, and, urban know, interface. Yeah, and it helps wildlife, but it also helps the local communities that live near these areas. So, yeah, so the stewardship and the conservation programs on the ground have been great, but but Miles, you and Steve have been very active on legislation. In fact, one of our big uh, things that we did in a podcast that I'm particularly proud of was what we did with the Great American Outdoors Act, but there was more that happened. There was the ASAC, the American Conservation Enhancement Act, just this past, uh, in, or in late December, the omnibus appropriations bill got passed, and that included the funding for the first full Great American Outdoors Act funding for Land and Water Conservation Fund. And there was, may not have the numbers exactly right, but something to the effect of $20 million in BLM funding for, for the Sportsman's Access to Making Public Lands. There was like 17 in uh, U.S. Forest Service and like 15 for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So suddenly uh, programs that were getting maybe $2 million a year for access to get to landlocked public lands or difficult to access public lands are now looking at about $50 million, um, which is a pretty big deal. Tell us a little bit about some of the legislation and also let's talk through transition because uh, we're going to be seeing an entirely new Congress and a new administration coming in. What does this mean for mule deer? Well, I'll tell you, you know, the one thing I wanted to remark about was that, you know, Congress always seems to be divided and we have a lot of, uh, in the political arena, a lot of division, but but the Congress came together on conservation this year. And and that's something that I think we can look uh, back on the last two or three years here and say, wow, we we accomplished a lot and it's in sportsmen and women are going to be able to, and wildlife are going to be able to reap the benefits of what, what these acts provided uh, in access and in land acquisition in habitat improvement. It's just amazing what we've been able to accomplish. And, uh, and, and, and luckily there's going to be funding to help us, help us accomplish that. Yeah. And I would just add Jody, you know, the, the amount we, we did not see as we sometimes do cuts to our natural resource programs, particularly that funding that was directed on the ground over the last couple of years, which is 
I think, as you said, it, you know, that shows that this is a nonpartisan issue and that these issues addressing habitat, addressing natural resource infrastructure can cross boundaries. And so we, we still have pretty healthy programs inside our federal agencies, which then they can then partner with groups like ours and others to go out and get this work done. And I think that's only going to be even more needed, as you mentioned, the historic wildfire year that we had this year, 10.3 million acres total and going. There's still fires going on as we speak. And record years in California, Colorado, and Oregon. Yep. Three biggest fires in Colorado state history. And uh, we could talk a little bit about one and the one we're going to be working out on, on the West Slope of the Pine Gulch fire. We were uh, in August. That was 139,000 acres. And that, that eclipsed the Hayman fire, which was our biggest fire. But and we were we were all kind of sober about that. And that's huge mule deer country. And we're going to be doing some work in that area, hopefully. But then come September, we have two monster fires that eclipse that, you know, over 200,000 acres or so. So it's it's really crazy. And those were, as Miles, as you were talking about, that was beetle kill. Um, you know, pine forests that, that had been insect death and not being able to clear out. And they just were tinderboxes and hot, dry weather and lots of wind. And they went nuts. Yeah, so I think we're going to see more attention to post-fire habitat issues and pre-fire prevention, which uh, let's face it, habitat's habitat. And if we can use, you know, wildfire uh, restoration or wildfire prevention to benefit mule deer and black-tailed deer habitat, that's the role MDF can step up and play. There's also, you know, continuing to work on some of the, there's legislation, bipartisan legislation, again, to, to try to continue to help uh, provide funding for, uh, you know, continue wild wildland fires and and restoration mm -hmm. but uh you know the other the one big thing that we're we're working on in, in conjunction with some partners is also trying to get some more funding to BLM you know when we hear all these all these fires in the west everybody assumes they're on forest service but there's there's a lot of this that's on the bureau of land management land and that's really some critical winter range for mule deer uh, habitat for sage grouse, antelope, a lot of, you know, over 300 species. And so, you know, that's a, that's a big thing that we're also trying to, trying to make sure that we can um, get funds to, to work in those areas. And one of the other things that we've mentioned a number of different times and has kind of moved forward in different ways, but never was really finalized was the categorical exclusion for habitat restoration in sagebrush rangelands. Uh, and that there's different parts of that, but that was finalized. The rule for the Bureau of Land Management was just finalized here a couple of weeks ago in, in December. Is that correct? Yes. And I've been working on that for, I swear, forever. Um, <laughs> and, and it just seems like it's taken a long time, but uh, um, kudos to, to Secretary Bernhardt for for shepherding that through through the bureaucracy and down through the agencies. And now hopefully we'll be able to start using that on, on Bureau of Land Management land. Um, and as you know, mostly it will be pinion juniper treatment. That's what it was designed for. And and the two species that will probably benefit the most will be mule deer and sage grouse. Yeah, that's we were we were just up hunting out in northwest Colorado just this past weekend a couple times actually over this last month and it's just beautiful rangelands uh, sagebrush rangelands and we saw a whole bunch of sage grouse tracks and a whole bunch of mule deer in that area uh, which is just really neat to see unfortunately we were looking for elk and for most of that time we weren't finding them so it really makes it hard to be happy about 
mule deer and sage grass when you're looking for elk, but <laughs> but it is great habitat, and you can see where that those types of treatments would be really important. So with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about what we can expect in the coming year. What does 2021 look for look like for some of our conservation projects? How are we looking into how things are going to happen for COVID? Um, tell us a little bit about what you see coming down, particularly Miles, since you're you're kind of on your on your last couple of weeks here with us. <laughs> well, yeah, Sadly. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot going to happen. I, you know, one, I think, I think with the vaccines, you're going to see COVID uh, take, you know, they're, they're saying until maybe May or June to, to be able to, um, you know, get, get enough out there where we're get back to some sort of normal and that, you know, but, uh, but, you know, also we have the transition from one administration to another, uh, you know, there's always a huge difference between the two parties when they when they come in. Some some benefit us, some some don't, and and so we're kind of waiting. We're we're talking to the transition teams and trying to get input into those. And in fact, we're we're trying to pull together a, a call for, with all the major CEOs of sportsmen's groups to try to deal with with the transition team with the Department of Interior and Department of Agriculture. And but as far as conservation projects, I and Steve can elaborate more, but we I see us having a, probably the best year ever um, because we've got several grants in the works and and the funding that came through this last year through some of these bills being passed and budgets being better in the in the department. So I I'm I'm optimistic and I'm actually that's the one thing I'm as I go into retirement I'm going to really really miss the conservation projects that we've been doing and the way we've been able to to grow that program. Yeah, Jody, so some of the conservation project and and program work that I'm excited about, of course, Miles and you have both mentioned there's going to be a, a a huge effort to try to get the new administration and the new folks in agencies up to speed on our issues. We're going to know some of them. There's going to be some carryover, particularly with career officials, but we're going to see a whole new Department of Interior and Department of Agriculture. And so there's going to be, you know, that learning period. We're also going to see some changes at the state office level. For We're, we're getting some new governors and every four years, it seems like there's always a turnover in our state fish and wildlife agencies. So getting those folks up to speed. But, you know, we've got great relationships and we're going to build on those and reconnect uh, to the new administration. We we expect our stewardship program to remain strong. The first half of the year will probably be, you know, not taking on a whole lot more just so we can see how the COVID issue and, and how some of the budget issues are going to play out. But we do expect the second half of the year for us to continue to grow on that. Um, we use the term shared stewardship, and it really encompasses a lot of the habitat work that we do with the federal and state agencies. But we're looking to actually put more partner biologists, foresters, and, and range specialists in state and federal offices, uh, sort of like what we have in Arizona and Idaho right now. We actually are working on two. They'll be in key positions in the in the in the West, and we think that's going to really help focus some habitat work in those areas of greatest need. Um, of course, our, our migration corridors and crucial winter range initiative is still going. We're now going to be seeing the results of the first three years of collared data that went out to the states on research coming back in. So we're going to be able to start letting the deer the, tell us where we need to be looking and, and evaluating for habitat work. So that's super exciting. And 
Lucas Olson, who, who works with us as a shared biologist on the migration work, is really going to be helping us lead that effort. That in conjunction with the new agreement we have with the BLM to look at those herds that cross one or more state boundaries and they get lost in the shuffle because the states can't really put the full effort. We're actually got a new partnership with BLM to start looking where those are at, where those herds are using BLM lands and how we can best help those herds that are that are crossing state lines. Oh, and then finally, it's a new initiative that we're starting. Um, it's going to be called the Priority Herds and Landscapes Initiative. And really what we're trying to do is we're trying to use the geographical and geopolitical and administrative boundaries to line up our resources to where the needs are different and then really focus in on those areas and, and do a deep dive on with our partners, particularly our state and federal agency partners, to figure out which herds and which habitats need our help the most, you know, in those areas where we're not duplicating efforts, but we're actually filling a niche and that we can have the biggest bang for the buck and the maximum conservation impact. And then we can be aligning our chapters, our members, our fundraising into specific areas like the Northern Great Plains or the Pacific Northwest or the Desert Southwest so that we can then be most effective, but also really position ourselves to fundraise and go do habitat work in these different areas and not maybe bog down some of the resources that are in a different habitat type or a different part of the country or dealing with a different agency. And then, you know, within those, we hope to identify projects that those those members in those chapters that may not have mule deer in their backyard but want to contribute to the work that we do in the field can then apply that money to that. So that's really exciting and you know I think it's it's in line with what a lot of other groups do but it's really we're growing this from the ground up because we've been able to work over the last 20 25 years and over the last 5 we really figured out how we can specialize in each region to to maximize that impact that MDF has in those areas. Yeah, I was going to mention when you were talking about Lucas and the the migration uh, corridor mapping process, a couple months ago, Lucas was on a team that released through the U.S. Geological Survey a uh, migration mapping atlas. There's an online resource to see those migrations, as well as a report that shows that for a number of the Western states. And a lot of that was spurred by... Uh, Secretarial Order 3362 that was for big game migrations. And so the work that Lucas is doing, the work that MDF is doing and partnering with these other scientists and being able to visualize these these migrations is is huge and feeds into how MDF now is going to be prioritizing the work that we're doing on the ground. Absolutely. And you know what's different, Jody, and you and I have been in this business and Miles is a long time. This is actually data that's out there for the general public to see. No longer is it being hidden behind a firewall where people say, you know, trust us, read what's in a technical journal. They're actually serving this stuff out there. You know, they're they're washing it a little bit so you don't know exactly what route, you know, so, you know, but you can see how we come to these conclusions on where stopover habitats are, where high priority migration corridors are, and that's super exciting. And you know, I I don't think any of this would happen without the order. And I know the $4 million that MDF has raised on habitat work on migration quarters and winter ranges wouldn't have happened without that order. So, you know, let's not forget that they that Secretary Zinke at the time signed that order at the Western Hunting 
Expo. And, you know, MDF's been a, a, a foundational partner in implementation and in making sure that this is done right. And it's probably going to be my and Miles' number one ask of the new administration is to keep the migration That's stuff what I was ask. first and foremost and a priority as they develop their platforms and what they're going to, to prioritize and spend money on. Yeah, I was going to ask that exact point, which is, you know, this was a secretary's order under this administration is the expectation that it'll carry forward. And, you know, I think we're hearing positive things about that. But I, like you said, MDF uh, and a number of other partner organizations, I, I think, Miles, you talked about uh, the groups getting together at this. This is one of those. It was it was mentioned in the American Wildlife Conservation Partners Wildlife for the 21st Century that came out in August. Um, that was a document that was intended to kind of itemize out the uh, priority issues to be able to carry forward those to the administ new administration. Um, so the migration corridors uh, program is part of that, not program, but the the order and the work that's being done at the uh, departmental level. But other stuff like the active management, um, the, the stewardship work we've been talking about is also one of those top priorities that the sportsman's community is going to be bringing to this administration. And I think it's important to recognize that, you know, we go back and forth on administrations all the time. Um, they're different. There's, that doesn't, it's main, there's some goods and there's some bads with each of them. And, and you work with who is there and to get the, the priorities identified and work through and, and figure out what their interests are and where they line up with the ones you're working on. So this is not unusual to go into a new administration and have things change. And, and we, you know, we, we're going to be working on it very closely along the way. So we've been talking a little bit about uh, what's going on with the transition with the new administration and other priorities, but uh, we have a little bit of other stuff that, that, that was one of the main reasons why that kept us away from doing podcasts, which was hunting. Uh, Steve, you, you took off a month to do hunting, and Miles, you drew kind of a, a primo tag. So, so who wants to start? Well, I, I have to caveat that, Jody, that I was going out almost every night to check my email and, and sign contracts and make sure everything flowed freely. But yeah, I, I was fortunate. But you weren't exactly year. in a place where you could record a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I was really fortunate um, to draw a Wyoming elk tag and a, and a Wyoming deer tag, uh, set up a camp, um, had both had, had a good friend come elk hunt with me, his second elk hunt we didn't get an elk, but we got in close. He got the full draw on a couple different bulls. He's excited about coming back. Um, you know, when, when, and I explained to him that, you know, the average elk hunter with a bow gets an elk every, you know, at 25%. So that means if you're coming to hunt, you got to come four years to kill one elk. So he's, he's learning. He's, he's, you know, we had a great hunt. Um, and then of course my brother and my nephew, came and hunted deer. We had one member of our party actually come down with some health issues and couldn't make it. And uh, we ended up killing three deer. Uh, I hunted half a day and it was more of a meat hunt for me. Um, but my brother and my nephew both got really nice Western Wyoming bucks in an area that when we talk about all this migration out of the Wyoming range, we were right in there. Um, we're actually going to do a story of it for the magazine because it, it is a great story. And it'd been I think 27 years since I had mule deer hunted with my brother. So, you know, there was a reconnection there and, and you know, all the scouting and everything. And so um, that was great. And then, of course, I hunted uh, uh, deer in Montana. And uh, actually on the second to last day of season, I missed the largest deer that I ever shot at. 
And I know people say, why are you telling your audience that you missed? Well, you know, it, it happens. <laughs> we um, all miss. Yeah. I mean, he, he was probably 31 to 33 inches wide. One of those racks that lays wow. just flat out. And it was, you know, I had a great experience. I saw bucks. I got out a couple of times, got out with my daughter. You know, she decided not to shoot a deer this year. Um, but we got some great bonding times. I got out to Eastern Montana for mule deer and I got it uh, here locally ar around Red Lodge for whitetails. So, you know, I did put deer in the freezer and uh, able to see a couple things, a couple observations out there. The woods were crowded this year. There were more people where I bow hunted for elk in two weeks than I've seen in the previous 20 years. And secondly, I, you know, CWD awareness and actions by hunters really needs to be stepped up. Um, and then thirdly, uh, deer populations are doing really well in certain areas, but in areas where there, we do have high CWD, I did notice fewer deer. Now, whether that was just weather or timing or anything else, I did notice that. So, But really, you know, I, I, everyone I talked to this year, Jody said they saw more people in the woods in the field than ever before, which is great. We've been pushing, um, you know, R3 and getting more people out there and enjoying our public lands. And, you know, yeah, it makes it a bit crowded. So it was great to see. I don't know if that's just a COVID thing and people had more time on their hands or actually we're seeing fruits of the R3 labor. But I had a great time. I actually went and took my physical with my primary care physician right after hunting season. And she was like, wow, you're in you know, great shape. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I just spent 45 days out walking and hiking and you know, not traveling this year, normally not eating that restaurant food, that hotel food, it really made a difference, but I had a great time, you know, thankfully, you know, we work in jobs that give us that flexibility. And, you know, as my wife says, you save up too much time to take off, but we do get to draw these special tags every now and then. And, and I really took advantage of it and the freezer is uh, full. So it, I'm very grateful. That's nice. Miles. You had quite a special tag. Yeah. Um, after 25 years of applying for a desert sheep tag, I drew one in Utah here, um, which was really satisfying because I spent part of my career with Utah DWR putting sheep on the mountain and in the desert. Uh, and uh, it was it a was phenomenal hunt. I mean, I hunted basically those people that are familiar with the old grand staircase escalante national monument um just just uh west of lake powell it's actually part of the mm -hmm. ponsagon deer unit that's where the sheep are it's called the Kaparowitz uh unit it's just spectacular country incredible and and what a hunt and luckily it was only only four days long um she, it was so dry sheep were coming to the water and uh was able to get one fairly close to the road so didn't have to hike way back into some of those big huge canyons but it's just a phenomenal country phenomenal hunt and then it's definitely when they you know it's a hunt of a lifetime and got an eight-year-old ram that's now at the taxidermist and and uh that's where you're gonna put I a could... full body mount so jody that's <laughs> really not. why he extended he, he sure he sh extended his retirement as he has to pay yeah, for that full body well the problem is i had him i had him cape it as a full body mount but when i got when i asked the taxidermist what it was going to cost i choked and besides <laughs> that if if in our retirement we end up Moving to St. George, we don't have room for a full body mount, so I'm just going <laughs> to yeah. do a shoulder shoulder mount. But uh, 
So, but uh, well, congratulations yeah. on that. It was a beautiful ram. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is, is these these desert sheep were transplanted from Nevada down by Las Vegas Lake Mead, and they still rut in September. So the rams were with the ewes and lambs, and you know, and then the native herd that still exists there, you can tell them because they rut later in the year, and it's hmm. it's a pretty interesting phenomenon. But it's literally right on the Arizona Utah line, and so it's in that pretty pretty dry deserty country. Yeah. Some of those desert sheep we brought up in my time at DWR near uh, farther north into Utah, they they adjusted their rut to later in the year. Wow, interesting stuff. And you also killed a, a deer up in Wyoming too, right? Yeah, well, you know, I did have a mule deer hunt in between there that didn't work out too well, uh, just a general season hunt. And we were trying to get a young guy that had never killed a, a mule deer, a, a mule deer, and we never did get him one. So that was kind of my bummer hunt. But uh, uh, then we, I hunt a ranch in northeast Wyoming and and uh, we have a group that goes up, you know, it's just, it's just a phenomenal ranch to hunt just outside of Sheridan and and one of the highlights of that is one of the one of my friends there, their daughter got her first uh, white-tailed deer, and that was neat. pretty pretty neat to see that next generation coming up. So love yeah. love hunting that ranch. Yeah, we, Jody, you we got, got out, out. You got out a little bit, yeah. didn't you? We have gotten out. Yeah, I uh, I was able to kill my second big game animal. I got a, another antelope buck in early October, and that was an awful lot of fun. We did a lot of upland bird hunting in the early season for grouse. We were up in eastern Montana for prairie grouse, uh, and, and a lot of that is for my daughter's jewelry. She makes earrings using the feathers from the birds we hunt, so it's a great excuse to get out hunting <laughs> for us, um, but it's also, you know, there are some really beautiful earrings. So we got some new sharp tail that's one of her favorite feathers and we needed some. So that was a good excuse to go up to Montana and also got some prairie chicken, greater prairie chicken in uh, Nebraska. Uh, we were up there and some more pheasants. And then um, my husband had a, a, a very good bull elk unit um, tag this year. And so we spent a lot of time scouting up there uh, over the summer and then got him set up and he, he didn't kill the monster he was hoping for, but he did get a nice bull. So uh, we then spent quite a bit of time, processing that and my antelope because actually my antelope I shot that the weekend we on the Saturday and we all left um a, two days later to go get his camp set up so it was a pretty quick turnaround um but we so my daughter and I are getting really good at uh making summer sausage and snack sticks uh from, from the the elk and the antelope so we have some great snacks for our our hunts which has come in handy because now we're trying still very hard to get my daughter her first elk she's had uh a tag four years in a row and unfortunately been unsuccessful every time so we've been going up this we've gone two different times up to northwest far far northwest colorado uh kind of on the utah wyoming border uh looking for for elk and it's been a little bit frustrating to say the least they're uh late season and they're pretty wary and we've we've finally found where most of them are but man those animals can see uh for miles and they don't stick around for very long so we might give it one more try here it's a all, all month long but you know we keep trying to remind her that and I've, I, I mean, her, her experience is elk hunting or my first experience is elk hunting. So, uh, so I'm learning in the process as well, but, but, uh, but it, it is, uh, it is frustrating, but as you said, elk hunting is not a guarantee by any stretch. Well, Jody, hopefully, you know, 
the hard work will pay off and, and it'll be worth that much more. But uh, one of the things, we, we've got to wrap up here, but there's a couple of things that we need to mention, Jody, before we go. Because of our success and the listeners out there and the growing audience, we were able now to uh, get folks interested in sponsoring our podcasts. And so we're going to be mixing that in. Um, it, we will never become we a thank commercial our sponsors. podcast. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a big deal because you and I started this as a kind of creative idea of, you know, let's, let's get our message out there in a different way and, and, and take advantage of the time people sit in cars to, to tell the story of mule deer and the work that the mule deer foundation is doing. And you guys have supported us and, and it's gotten, gotten enough interest that we've got some, some supporters who are, are interested in, in, in supporting talking mule deer. So thanks to our sponsors yeah. and thanks to our listeners. Yeah, and so we're not just so folks know we're never going to strive. We're always going to use this podcast to talk about the Mule Deer Foundation and Mule Deer Conservation, and those partners and supporters and issues associated with that. So we're not going to really change formats. We're just going to get some help and making pull this off, and hopefully make it better and and, and reach more audiences. The other thing is, folks are going to see starting with our quarter one magazine in 2020 a new look to the Mule Deer Foundation magazine. Miles, why don't you just give us a brief overview of what that really is is going to highlight? Well, and it's the first quarter of 2021. Um, 2021, so, yeah. Sorry. Yes. Come on, we want to turn the page on 2020. As well. <laughs> Let's yeah. go. Put it behind well, us. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're changing the format of the magazine. We're going from six issues to four issues a year. And uh, so, you know, we're doing a lot of things different and creative, trying to, you know, we're, we're we're going to have less issues, but we're adding more pages, which uh, is more efficient in the printing, um, costs less overall. And uh, but our new content is going to be great. I mean, Jody's part of the editing team, and uh, we'll have new writers and some of our old writers, some of our old features and new features, and it's 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 going to have a nice new look to it. Yeah, it's 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 definitely going to be different. You're going to see it. You're going to see that difference, and we tried really hard to still make sure that we kept to the roots of what the Mule Deer Foundation is, but also to try to make it a little bit of an easier reading environment, uh, a little cleaner, a little more black and white in some areas in terms of uh, more space for the the text. Uh, I think you're. I think I think people are going to think we landed in a good spot with how it looks, and the the a group called the Northwoods Collective is is who is editing that magazine for us or creating, doing the design work for us. And, uh, and we're going to be talking to them in, in another future podcast to talk about what that magazine is going to look like so that you guys can all get an idea of what we have in mind and, 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 and what they're going to be doing with that project moving forward. Yeah. The one thing I insisted on is the cover pretty much stay the same. I mean, the next guy in three months can change that, but I want, <laughs> I, that was always the thing when we surveyed our members is they love the cover photo and, nice big uh, buck. and, and the, what they look and, and different things. And so, you know, that, that we tried to leave that somewhat the same. Um, we changed the cover up a little bit, but that way, you know, it, it still has that same look, but I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, and potentially this first issue coming out may be my last president's message, or I may get one more depending on when the new CEO uh, comes on board. But, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's been really, it was time for an update. The last time we had updated was about eight, eight, 10 years ago. And, and, uh, in, in times have changed and, and have producing a magazine six times a year was really, 
really getting to be a lot. And uh, and so I think we've we've struck that balance with with helping our members, uh, you know, new content, fresh content, but still retain some of that old flavor, like Jody said. Yeah, and, and you'll still see we've got all of our state spotlights and regional updates so you can find out what's going on in, in MDF in your state. Uh, and we also are still, we're expanding the conservation programs storyline and keeping a number of our normal contributors in there, Mark Kaiser and Jim Heffelfinger, but we are getting some new uh, writers in there that that hopefully brings some more storytelling uh, to, to the book as well. So we hope you like it and 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 see the value that we do in, in the new design and the new opportunity. It's, it, it's going to be interesting to, to, to get my first one dropped. It's always different when you see it on a computer to see when you get that hard copy <laughs> in your hands. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and one of the things too is uh, with this new company that's that's helping us put the magazine together, they do some other magazines and they had some different sponsors, uh, advertisers that uh, are they're bringing to the table and helping us with. And our, some of our old sponsors have really stepped up and really embraced this. And, and so uh, you're going to, but you're going to see some new companies uh, advertising with us in a new magazine. Well, Miles, Jody, I think it's time that we're going to have to, to wrap this up for today. Um, I do want our listeners to know we do have uh, feedback opportunities for here at Talk of Mule Deer. If you want to send us your ideas uh, for future topics, uh, it's podcast at muledeer.org, or you can weigh in at social media. We have a Talking Mule Deer uh, Facebook and Instagram page, or just the Mule Deer page. Uh, we're happy to take your suggestions, and hopefully, you know, we can make this a better uh, for all of our listeners. So. We appreciate uh, you as our listeners. Miles, we appreciate you. And, and this very well could be our last podcast with you, which is going to be disappointing because I'll never be able to like, say again, our favorite talking mule deer guest is on with us again. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you'll we find bring a, you back. You'll, we'll, you'll we'll find, we'll find a, a way to bring you back. <laughs> yeah, you'll find a new new favorite. I'll, I'll oh, come back. Oh, no, no, no. We're not I'll fair weather back. friends. I'll come back as, uh, you know, CEO emeritus or something. So there you go. We'll, we'll bring you back to, <laughs> to, to reminisce about the, the times we have. But we are looking forward to to the, the, the future of MDF. I think that the, the future is bright. We've had our challenges this year, as has everybody. But, uh, you know, you learn to work things differently and you see new opportunities. And and there's a lot of great things coming up for 2021 for the Mule Deer Foundation. So thank you for listening to us this time. For now, this is Jody Stemler. And I'm Steve Belinda, and thank you for talking Mule Deer. Thanks for talking Mule Deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.